The wisdom of the world has rejected Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But faith attaches itself to the wisdom of God. For salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That is divine wisdom, the knowledge of God who is our cornerstone. May the Holy Spirit lead us to confess and build upon this wisdom. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we're all familiar with product warning labels, right? We see them all the time. They give us cause for alarm as they're supposed to, saying things like warning, poison could lead to death if swallowed. But the thing is, we read so many of these warnings that we tend to dismiss them rather than give them heed. And some of them can actually be quite humorous. There's window air conditioning units that display the warning, caution, avoid dropping air conditioner out of window. A warning label on an iron says, warning, never iron clothes while wearing them. A warning label on a Halloween Superman costume said, warning, cape does not enable user to fly. Nabisco Easy Spread Cheese announces on its label, for best results, remove cap. And a, a label on baby lotion reads, keep product away from children. The warning label is intended and designed to protect us from harm. That is, if we heed them. And if there was a warning label that was placed on our gospel text for today, it would read this. Warning. If you reject God's Son, you will receive God's judgment. On the Sunday before the crucifixion, Jesus was welcomed by the cheers of the people. As he entered Jerusalem, he paused, and he sobbed bitter tears over how the people of Israel had rejected him. Over the next few days, he taught openly in the temple courts, and the religious leaders tried unsuccessfully to entrap him with trick questions. And in the midst of all these questions, he shared a parable that contained a scathing indictment against the failure of the Jewish people to accept him. What do you think of the parable that we heard today? Is it a parable of judgment? A parable of law to show us our sin? Or is it a parable to teach us about the relentless mercy and love of our Heavenly Father? Well, really, it's all the above. But like with the parable of the prodigal son that we heard last week, it's, it's the last thing, the relentless mercy and love of our Heavenly Father that's the, really the main point of all this. That He does not easily give up on us. That He is passionate to save each and every one of us at all costs. And really, that's good news that we can never hear enough especially since we live in the midst of a world that's quite different than that. A dog-eat-dog world that will use you, chew you up, and spit you out, and not think twice about it. But how utterly different is God's love? His true love, not what passes for love in this world, but a love, a love that would, well, would do what we heard in our parable today. 
We heard of a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now, the people of Jesus' day would have been very familiar with that kind of arrangement. Many people were tenant farmers working the land of another who lived far away. And in this case, the owner would have done most of the work, preparing the land, planting the grapes, basically doing what was needed to virtually guarantee a harvest. The tenants had only to tend the plants, harvest the fruits, and pay the owner his agreed-upon share. It was, by all accounts, a very nice place to be, and a simple enough arrangement. Except we see something went shockingly, horribly wrong. The tenants staged a, re staged a revolt. When the harvest time came, the owner's servants, one after the other, were sent back empty-handed and beaten. The average landlord would have flew into a rage, evicted those tenants and taken legal action. But not this one. This one, who had prepared such a wonderful vineyard, goes one step further, hoping against hope to receive a harvest, hoping against hope that these wicked tenants will turn from their evil ways. What shall I do, he says? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. It doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, what kind of father would send his beloved son to a bunch of people who had already mistreated a number of his servants? Well, the tenants then see the son, and in doing so, they assume that the owner is dead. And so they think, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. Which sounds crazy, but is actually quite possible. For if the owner of the land had died and left no heirs, the tenants could legally claim that land and get it free and clear. So they take the son off the property, so they'll look innocent, of course, and they kill him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will then execute his judgment. Because you see, the son is the end of the line in the parable. He's the last word from the owner of the vineyard. Everything is riding on the sun. Reject the sun, and there is nothing but judgment. And so in the end, the tenants were not condemned because they were worse than any of the other tenants in the neighborhood, or because their harvest was poor. We actually never hear anything about that, do we? No, they were condemned because they rejected the owner's son. If you reject the son, if you reject the owner's love, then you are lost. Which sadly, the chiefs, uh, the scribes and the chief priests do that at the very hour, seeking to lay hands on Jesus to get rid of him. But what about you? That's an important question for us to ask ourselves. For if this parable is only about others, it's only about them, then you're not hearing it right. So where are you in this story? Well, there's really no choice, is there? There's really only one place we can be, and it's not a very comfortable place. We are the tenants who want to be the owners.
Because that's the character of our sinful nature, to be like these tenants, never satisfied with some, to always want more, to want it all. From Adam and Eve, who are not satisfied with all but one tree in the garden, to you and me today, the story is the same. We want to be the owner. We want to be in control. As you look at the, the mantras in our world today, and we, we see that played out, we hear things like, or maybe even say things ourselves, like, it's my money, I can spend it as I please. It's my body, I can do what I want with it. It's my time, I can use it however I wish. It's my life. I don't need God or the church or anyone else to tell me how to live it. And in doing so, we don't acknowledge God as the owner. We simply want to be the owner. But how generous God has been with you and me. How much he has given us. How little he has asked in return. And yet consider, who are the servants that God has sent to you? To collect his share of faith and love. Who needs your time? Who needs your help? Who needs your care? Who needs your compassion or listening ear or sympathetic heart? Yet, have you sent them away empty-handed? Have you turned a cold, short, a cold sh shoulder or a deaf ear? Have you beaten or even killed them with your words, your anger, or your refusal to help? It's so very easy to condemn them, those wicked tents, isn't it? But at least we know we would never do that to the Son, right? We're Christians. We believe in Jesus. We would never. But didn't Jesus say, whatever you did for the least of these, you did it to me? What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's what you and I deserve, isn't it? And if Jesus had ended his teaching there, what would we do? Thanks be to God, the parable does not end there. For Jesus has not come to leave us in our sin, but instead to save us from it. And how can he do that? Well, that's the piece of gospel irony in this parable. The new thing of which Isaiah spoke about in our Old Testament text. The thing that nobody could have imagined. That God would use the death of his beloved son at the hands of wicked tenants to give life to the world. That all, all, even the wicked tenants who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Because God is not constrained by what we do, by our sin, wringing his hands in heaven and mourning the death of his son. No, this was his plan. This was his plan to use sin to destroy sin, to send his son to death to break the power and the grip of death, to execute judgment against his son, Jesus, 
that we might not be executed for our sin. For our patiently long-suffering, relentlessly merciful, and passionately saving God, He desires that not one sinner be lost. He desires that all would turn to Him and live. In our brokenness, we repent of our sin. We fall on the cornerstone and there stand on His mercy. Stand on His new life. That our lives would be built on the cornerstone of Christ and His forgiveness, His saving grace. Our relentless, loving God has done it all for you. The body of Christ the Son given for you. The blood of Christ the Son shed for you. For you, because Jesus came for you. To take your judgment. The judgment against sinners. And to give you his life. The very life of God. That you may live and not die. That God may do a new thing, not only in our world, but in each and every one of you. And when you eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus, that new thing is working in you. Forgiving you, raising you, cleansing you. That he live in you and you in him. And so produce the fruits of faith by life in Christ. And thus, in Christ, we don't need to fear the judgment of God. Not now or in the end. Because it is finished. It is finished in Christ. And so when you look to the cross, don't feel guilty. Feel love. 